and read here in John chapter 5, we're going to see, of course, Jesus being persecuted uh, for standing up for who he was. We're going to, as we, if we read, when we read through the book of Acts, you already saw that there was persecution for people that named the name of Christ. And so as we read this morning, we'll see all of that. I'm going to go ahead and read through the text, and then we will pray and then look through it piece by piece as we see here. Verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in, was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. And a certain man was there, which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. When Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool. But while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed and walk. And immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said unto him that was cured, It is the Sabbath day. It is not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. He answered them, He that made me whole, the same said unto me, Take up thy bed and walk. Then answered they him, What man is that which said unto thee, Take up thy bed and walk? And he that was healed wist not who it was, for Jesus had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus findeth himself in the temple and said unto them, Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more lest a worse thing come upon thee. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus which had made him whole. And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him, because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. But Jesus answered them, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord, that we know that you are in control of all things, that despite the opposition that your people have faced, that you still are king. We thank you, Lord, also for the knowledge that our rest, our Sabbath, is dependent on the fact that you work even until now, that you are not bound by time any more than space, and that the signs that your son performed point to how we can trust him as the great and mighty God that he is. I ask God now that you would move your spirit on our services this morning, that you would help us to be as you would have us to be, that you would convict our hearts and lead us to conformity with the image of your son, Jesus, in whose name I pray. Amen. This is the third sign. You know, we've been going through the book of John. John includes seven miracles, and this is the third miracle. The first thing we saw, of course, was the turning of water into wine at Cana, and we saw that he is the kind of God who makes a change. The second thing that we saw was the healing of the nobleman's son. And as Jesus performed this miracle, he did it without without being bound by space. Many people believed, of course, that uh, for someone to perform a miracle, they had to go 
and go lay their hands on the person. And of course, when the man comes to Jesus, what is he saying? He says, won't you come to my son? But Jesus says, go your way. Your son is healed. Because God is not bound by space. And we saw there, of course, that he is the kind of God, a God of word, a God of a declarative word, a God who speaks and it's done, a God who responds to faith. So we see that here. Today, as we look at John chapter 5, one thing I think we're going to see, among other things, is that just as he was not bound by space, where he didn't have to be in a certain place to work, he's not bound by time. It doesn't matter that it was the Sabbath day. It didn't matter that uh, the creation was many years past at this point. He's still working. He's still active. In our case, it doesn't matter that Jesus gave his life 2,000 years ago. His power is still just as effective today as it was then. The power of his resurrection still has the same power today that it did 2,000 years ago. And so as we look here, we see Jesus as the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, this is such a fantastic story. I should have gotten some, some of the pictures because I did take a couple pictures of this when we were in Israel. Uh, the sheep gate, or the, sheep, the, the pool of Bethesda, they discovered it fairly recently. And it says that it has five porticos, it's five colonnades to provide some shade. And for a long time, secular scholars said, or liberal Christian scholars also, or you know, Christian, um, said, well, look, that shows you John doesn't know anything about it. How could you possibly have, why would you possibly have five porches around a pool? You know, what does that even mean? Until recently, they discovered it across from this church called St. Anne's in Jerusalem. And what they found out is that it was actually two pools, side by side, and it was, they were connected. And so if you imagine the two blocks of pews here, well, what they did is there was a porch on this side, that side, that side, that side, and on the wall, dividing them. And that's why there was five. Now, so when somebody tells you, you know, this was written way later. They had uh, no, you know, the, the Gospels were just made up hundreds of years later. There was, they're not really eyewitnesses. Uh, Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, and the sheep pool was buried. How would is the question you ask your skeptical friend. How would John have known that the pool by the sheep gate had five porches, except for the fact that he was here and he saw it with his own eyes? That's kind of a neat thing. So you imagine here, as we read this, you've got this vision of two pools put together. It says, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is, a, there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. So again, there's these five colonnades, these five shaded areas around this pool, one in the middle and then uh, wrapped around each side. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, a blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. You imagine now around your pool, you've got this massive crowd of helpless people. You know, they can't walk, can't move. It's laying around the pool, waiting for the water to be moved. You say, well, that's a strange thing. What are they doing waiting for the water to be moved? The next verse tells us, for an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whoever, whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. So it says that there was an angel who came and would, at, from time to time, stir the water, and the water would move miraculously. And when the water moved miraculously, the first one to touch it would be healed. 
Uh, if you have got a modern translation, this, vote, this verse is in a footnote, almost certainly. Um, because as they've discovered older manuscripts, this verse is missing from almost all of the older manuscripts. And so some of the, the textual people that put together the manuscript evidence say, okay, so this was probably added later because it's not found in the earlier manuscripts. Uh, one real, the, the reason that that's not true um, is that, well, a couple different reasons. Uh, you know, sometimes the wording will vary in older manuscripts and younger manuscripts, and you can look at the spelling of a word and say, this is probably how it was originally spelled, and these later copies copied a misspelling, and things like that happen. But an entire verse to be completely lost is almost without, or completely added is almost without precedent. It's, it's crazy in an ancient document that has as much manuscript evidence as the New Testament does. So what their argument is, the argument of people who say you need to excise this verse, is that the text is kind of confusing without it, and so somebody who knew the reason added this verse in later. Now let me give you a uh, couple of reasons to argue against that. One, a um, Christian letter writers, Christians writing in the second century, so like 150 AD, talk about this verse already. And when they're using this verse in arguments where they're talking to each other, they don't argue with each other, oh, well, that verse isn't there, what are you talking about? So already by 150 AD, even though it's not in the manuscripts that we have from that time, it is included in the letters of people who read the New Testament. So their copies of the scriptures, they wore them out and they were lost, because the, and they, we just have copies of their copies, but the, uh, they witnessed to it in their letters. Another thing is that it is, you, you have to figure out why would some of the later manuscripts not have this? And in the third century, there was a big argument because pagans believed that certain waters had magical powers. And one of the Christians, Justin Martyr, was arguing from this text that uh, the pagans alone, the pagans believed that things had powers in themselves, but Christians believed that God imbued things with power. So when Elijah's bones raised some, uh, not Elijah, I'm sorry, Elisha's bones, raised somebody from the dead. It's not that Elisha's bones were magic, it's that God performed a miracle in that spot. It's not that these waters were magic, uh, it's that they, God performed a miracle at that spot. And after the destruction of Jerusalem, in the ruins of this pool, they built a pool to a Greek god and uh, called it a healing altar, probably because of a memory of what had happened there before. And so, what appears to have happened is that in some of the later Greek manuscripts, the people believed that that must have been added by the Romans, and they removed it. And so the, the reason that it's not found in a lot of ancient manuscripts is because it, somebody removed it in Egypt and um, because it matched up with pagan superstitions, and they thought, oh, that can't supposed to be there. But it was retained in everywhere except Egypt. So everywhere in the entire world that we have a manuscript, this verse is found except for manuscripts in Egypt. So why do, they, why do some textual scholars remove it? Well, because the, ones that, the manuscripts we have in Egypt are the oldest because of the weather there. The weather there keeps things from decaying, papyrus from decaying. So all that to say, if it's in a footnote in your Bible, it's in a footnote because some very well-meaning people didn't think through what they were doing. And at a certain point, other people just accepted it. This verse is found, this verse, John wrote this verse, and it's the only explanation for what was happening here. So an angel went down 
and stirred the pool and troubled the waters. The first one in troubled the waters. One argument, the first one in was healed after the waters were troubled. One argument that's made uh, against this also is, why would God do something like that? Why would he allow the first person that got there to be healed? And we'll see that there's actually a great spiritual lesson there in just a moment. A certain man was there which had an infirmity 30 and 8 years. There's a man here who's been laying and waiting for 38 years outside this pool to be healed. When Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? Jesus walks up and he sees this man laying there and he says, Do you want to be well? Now, that may seem like a dumb question, um, but it's really not. And we've all known people who have had some kind of a problem and have not wanted to be made well. And, you know, you say, well, is this, yes, this is a problem. Yes, I need to quit this. But no, I, I'm not really willing to. You're in some kind of a situation. And, you know, sometimes people who are suffer, suffering in some way take almost a kind of a perverse pleasure in the attention they get for it. Some people who have got some kind of a problem, and uh, I'm going to use an example here. My grandma's here this morning, but she knows this, is, this happened. She, she was telling me uh, before she had her stroke that she tried to quit smoking all the time. She'd use the lemon drops. I liked it when she used the lemon drops. I like the lemon drops. And she had all these different things, and she, you know, Nicorette and patches and whatever. And she told me after she had her stroke, she quit smoking when she had her stroke because she was in the hospital for several weeks and they, you know, not much you can do about that and then never smoked again after that. She told me after that that the whole time she was trying to quit, she never prayed for God to help her quit before that because she didn't really want to. Now, how often do we pull up our strength about something and say, okay, I'm going to knock this out, but you don't really commit it to God because you don't really want to. You don't really want to be made well. You get used to being sick. You get used to being infirmed. You get used to being helpless. You know, when we're caught up in some sin, we have this sin and we fight with a little bit and then we fall back into it. We fight with a little bit and we fall back into it. And Jesus can come up to us and he says, do you want to be well? Now, sometimes the answer is no. Sometimes the answer is we love our sin more than we love God. And if that's the case, we can lay there and waste away saying, well, I'm doing my best. I'm here waiting for the troubling of the waters. I'm waiting on some long shot. And if this long shot comes through, then I'll do it. But God says, do you want to be well? Will you give it to Jesus? Wilt thou be made whole? Jesus comes up, he has compassion on him, and he asks him a simple question. Will you be made whole? But the man, the impotent man, answered him, sir, I have no man when the water is troubled, to put me into the pool. But while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. So he doesn't know who Jesus is. So he says, I don't have anybody to help me get into the pool. And he's sort of hinting, will you help me get into the pool? Now, this verse alone is not decisive about this man's character. He's, he's a kind of an excuse maker. He says, well, you know, I just, it's not my fault. I just don't have anybody to help me. And as we read a little further, we'll see some more proof of that. This verse alone wouldn't, wouldn't make that for sure. But he says, there's, there's just nobody to help me. I'm just helpless. It's not my fault. He doesn't really answer the question, do you want to be well? 
but he says, nobody will help me. But Jesus saith unto him, rise, take up thy bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made whole, and took up his bed and walked. Jesus gives him a command to do something he has not been able to do for 38 years. Get up, take up your pallet, and walk. If he had not done anything, he said, oh, that's impossible. And the next day he had tried. He'd been thinking about it and he said, you know, let me stand up and walk. I don't believe that he would have been able to move the smallest muscle in his body. If he had said, well, you know what, maybe I have gradually gotten better and tried to work his way up, it wouldn't have done any good. But God gave him a command. And with a shimmer of faith, he answered that command. And because of that, he was made whole. You know, when we're, the Bible says that no man can come unto me, Jesus says, no man can come unto me except my father draw him. See, when God comes and he convicts your heart and he tells you, you need to repent and you need to believe. By giving you that command, he is giving you the power to do it. God's never commanded you to do anything he did not empower you to do. But you decide, are you going to respond or not? You know, we say, was this man healed by works or by grace? Well, he was not healed by works by any stretch of the imagination. He did not slowly strengthen his muscles back up, and he didn't fight his way to the pool. He wasn't strengthened by anything except grace. But if he hadn't chosen to respond to that grace with an act of his will, if he hadn't reached out in faith, he would have laid there and languished for the rest of his life. Do you want to be made well? Rise up, take up thy bed, and walk. So the question here is, when God comes and God convicts you in something, God starts to guide you towards something, do you follow through in faith? God says, lay down this sin. Get up out of this nasty place. Take up your bed and walk. See, why does he need to take up his bed? Well, I think it's very obvious. He's been laying on this bed for 38 years. This little bed on this corner of this pool is his home. And Jesus says, take up your bed because this is not your home anymore. See, when we're dead in sin, God doesn't just say, get up. And then go and hang out here some more in this same sin you've been living. And he says, get up, take up your bed and walk. This is not your home anymore. You can leave. Rise up, take up thy bed and walk. And immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. See, John does this a lot. John will tell you a story and not tell you some key piece of information until the very end. So you read this and you think, what a great story. And then you get to, on the same day was the Sabbath. It's kind of ominous. It's (laughs) Uh-oh, well, what's, what's going on here? Because moving something from one place to another was one of the dozens and dozens of things that was not permitted on the Sabbath according to Jewish oral tradition. No. There is nothing in the Old Testament that says if you're healed on the Sabbath day from being lame for your entire life by the living Son of God, don't t- pick up your bed. That's not what it says. Uh, it says, on the sixth day, no work shalt thou do. You know, that's, the purpose of that was to remind them to trust God. But, of course, the Jewish people, because don't we always, wouldn't we rather have rules than principles? 
Because a principle, it's very hard to find a loophole in a principle. God gives you a... If God gave you the command, you need to give 10% of your income to the poor. You know what the first question you'd ask would be? Well, gross or net? How when you talk about tithing and somebody says, well, is that before taxes or after taxes? If you're asking that question, maybe you're approaching the whole thing in the wrong way. Um, You know, one thing is you you deal with, uh, when I was teaching at a Christian high school, is the kids would say, well, exactly how far is too far before you get married? How do we deal with sin? We want to say, how close to the line can I get without crossing over? How far can I push myself without crossing that line? No. If I, so God says, give 10% of your income. You say, well, how close can I get to that line? Can I do 10% after taxes? What about 10% after I pay my bills? You know, what about 10% of my spending money? What about how, how far can I push it? And that's how, we do, that's how we deal with rules. We're always looking for a loophole. But then God comes along and he gives some kind of a principle. Like, love your neighbor as yourself. It's kind of hard to find a loophole in that. There's only one loophole you can find in that. And somebody tried it. Jesus said, go love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells a parable, of course, to illustrate everybody's in your, everybody's your neighbor. So, so if your question is, if Jesus says, love everybody as yourself, it's hard for you to figure out where to push the line on that, isn't it? If God does say, give 10%, but he doesn't spell out, you know, okay, well, you can make this kind of a deduction. And what if it's your retirement and you already tithed on it and different things like that? God, instead of that, says, let every man give as he's purpose in his heart cheerfully. The Lord loveth the cheerful giver. Well, that's kind of hard. That's kind of hard to work your way around. So when Jesus says, when God says, rest on the seventh day of the week, trust in me. And remember, we talked about how the uh, Sabbath was, of course, this, this rhythm of trust. Because if I have to work, 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 work seven days, I don't trust God. But if I say, God, I believe you can do more in six days than I can do in seven. And so I rest the seventh day. That's an act of trust. We saw, of course, that when God rested on the seventh day, he rested on his throne. He sat down and took control of his universe. And so we can rest from our labor because he rests on his throne. Hebrews says there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. We can rest from our work because Jesus has paid it all. But the Jewish people looked at that and said, well, rest, trust in God. That's kind of hard. It's hard for me to find a loophole on that. How about, exactly how far am I allowed to walk? And they got kind of funny about it. You know, you were allowed to walk about three quarters of a mile from your home because that was the distance a synagogue could be in different things. So by Jesus' day, what they would do is they said, if you were here and you could see a tree three quarters of a mile away and you could say, well, that's going to be my home for the night, then you could walk three quarters of a mile to your home and then three quarters of a mile past your home. You get a mile and a half instead of three quarters of a mile. They, they said, well, you just got to stretch the rules a little bit. We got to find some kind of a loophole. Exactly how much am I allowed to carry? We treat God like that all the time. We treat God's rules like, how close can I get? If the speed limit says 60 miles an hour, what do you think? 65. 
think, well, you know, they're not going to write me a ticket for five over. So I can go 65. You don't see any police officers around you say, I can go 70. I can get slowed down five miles an hour before they get to me. You're on 59. You can't see anybody. As far as you can see, I don't want to know how fast you go. But what do we do? We think about what can I get by with? You know, you're filling out your taxes. You get to dependence. You're like, well, I've got a cat and a fish. <laughs> you write that off too. So they say, I got paid for this job in cash. I don't remember exactly how much. Maybe it was $20. I'm not sure. What do we want to do when we see a rule? We want to get as close as we can. You know, you, you kind of smirk at the high schoolers that ask how far is too far, but that is what we do in every area of our life. God lays down a boundary, and we say, okay. So God says, you cannot go one foot that way. I say, what about 11 and a half inches? So the Jews had invented these elaborate rules so they could avoid the basic principle of Sabbath. And you can't pick up your bed. Don't pick up your bed. They go on. The same day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said unto him that was cured, it is the Sabbath day. It is not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. They see him and they say, hey, you're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to carry your bed. He answered them, he that made me whole, the same said unto me, take up thy bed and walk. Well, I told you this man's going to make excuses. He said, well, it's, it was the person that made me whole's fault. He told me to take up my bed and walk. In one sense, that's a, that's a perfectly natural attitude. You know, God tells you to do something. The one that healed you, the one that saved you from sin, tells you to do something, you ought to do it. But in this case, when we combine it with the, there's no one to carry me, we find out this man's a little bit difficult. Verse 12, then asked they him, what man is it that said that which said unto thee, take up thy bed and walk? Now, I want you to notice something here. We don't have a whole lot of time, but what they don't say, he says, the man that healed me, I've been paralyzed for 38 years. The man that healed me said, take up thy bed and walk. What would be the natural question? Who is it that healed you? What's the question the Jews ask? Who is it that told you to take up your bed and walk? Isn't it strange how when we're upset about something or looking for something, we can miss the mountain of good to find the speck of bad? Isn't it insane how as we look at the world, we see the world so tilted with what we want to see that we miss the heart of the matter. They don't see Jesus as the healer. They see Jesus as the Sabbath breaker. And he that was healed wist not who it was, for Jesus had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. Uh, that conveyed himself away can be literally translated ducked out. There was the crowd. He didn't know who it was that healed him because Jesus ducked out right after, escaped in the multitude. Afterwards, Jesus findeth him in the temple and said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon thee. He said, Jesus goes and he finds this man. And he says, Now you better stop sinning or something worse is going to happen. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that he had been paralyzed for 38 years because of some sin. It could be. But what Jesus is saying is that for people who refuse to repent of their sins, the fate they face is worse than being laid on the ground for 38 years helpless. To die in your sin, to die separated from God forever, is worse than being paralyzed for 38 years. 
as a Christian, to lose your fellowship with God because you refuse to repent of your sin is worse than being paralyzed for 38 years. It's not worth it. Jesus says, go and sin no more or something worse will happen to you. Verse 15, the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus which had made him whole. Now I want you to understand, Jesus had rescued this man from 38 years of suffering. And the first thing he does is go and betray Jesus to the Jewish authorities to save his own skin for carrying his bed on the Sabbath. I I, I read this story a number of times, obviously, and that hadn't caught me quite the way it did when I was studying for this. Jesus rescues him from the miry clay but then he, Jesus comes and tells him, go and sin no more. And that just offends him so much that he goes and turns Jesus over. I wish that I could say that I'd never experienced anything like that. But uh, there are people that we've spent time and money and everything else trying to invest in, trying to help. And then you confront somebody about some sin. You say, you can't do this anymore. And they blow up. And how dare you talk to me like that? God comes to you and God says, you cannot live like this anymore. And the God who saved you from hell, the God who rescued you from the miry clay, immediately you say, well, I'm not going to, this church has got expectations for me that are way too high. He goes and he turns Jesus over to the authority. He says, that's the one. Jesus is the one. What a terrible thing. And one thing it tells us is something we need to remember is that the physical miracles are just pointers to the true spiritual miracle. And unless this man repented, it did not matter that Jesus had rescued him and cured his paralysis. He still went to hell. You can have great physical blessings, but if you have not given your heart to Jesus, it doesn't matter what else God has given to you. It doesn't matter that you live in the United States while 6.7 billion people don't. It doesn't matter that you have a Christian family or any other advantage that you have. What matters is your heart. He says in verse 16, And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him, because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. At this point they began to look and try to kill Jesus, because he'd been healing on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. Jesus said, God's still working. Although the Bible says he rested on the seventh day, we know that all things by him hold together. Although he rested from his labor of creation, although he rested on his throne, God is still active. And Jesus says, I'm still active for the same reason. We talked about this earlier, but again, the reason you can rest is because God doesn't. The reason that when you get tired, you can rest is because you know that God never stops. He's always active. His eye is always watching. His hand is always holding up. And so Jesus says, the reason I don't rest on the Sabbath is because my work is the reason that you can rest. Therefore, the Jews sought the more to kill him because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. When you say God's his father, making himself equal with God, Father and Son are the same substance. Because he's of the same substance as God. He is the person of God. 
They want to kill him for breaking the Sabbath. They want to kill him for making himself equal with God. And they miss the healing that he had done. Jesus is Lord over the Sabbath. Time, space, things like that don't bother him. He comes and he heals where he is. He comes and makes a change where he is. And so although Jesus, 2,000 years ago, told this man, do you want to be well? Rise, take up thy bed and walk. That offer has not become less binding in the interim. The offer that God makes to you is he looks at you, he looks at your sin, he looks at your helplessness, he looks at you bound up, and he says, I've got one question for you. Do you want to be made well? You're not saved, you're lost. He looks at you and says, do you want to be made well? Do you want to be forgiven of your sin? Do you want to be changed? If you're a Christian, but you have let yourself go back into bondage to some sin, some habit, to something that controls you, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. If something has got you under its control, God says, do you want to be made well? And because he commands you to repent, just as when that man was told, rise up, take up your bed and walk, you have the power to turn from your sin now. Not in yourself, but in the fact that you say, yes, Lord, in faith, I respond to you. That's how sanctification works. Sanctification works by saying, yes, Lord. I believe you when you tell me I can turn from this. I trust you from faith to faith. The question for you this morning is, you may be in bondage in some way. You may be paralyzed. You may say, I am completely helpless. But Jesus says, there is no temptation that's overtaken you, but such as is common to man. He says it through the Apostle Paul, but he still says it. There's no temptation that's overtaken you, but such as is common to man. But in every temptation, God provides a way of escape. You may be able to bear it. God says, there's a way out for you from this temptation. There's a way out for you from this sin if you'll just rabbit. And you say, yes, Lord, I believe you when you tell me I can rise, take up my bed, and walk. I cannot do it in my own strength, but I believe that because you command me to do it, you empower me to do it. Whatever it is in your life that's got you in bondage this morning, Jesus wants to set you free from it. Jesus, who was crucified for standing up for what was right. I told you I was going to give you the spiritual lesson of the angel coming and stirring the water. Why did God do that? Well, for decades, God had allowed these people to fight this rat race to be healed. So that on this one day, Jesus could show that he was greater. Jesus could show that he did not require you to, in your own works, fight to be better than others. That Jesus did not need you to be first or the strongest or the closest. He just needed you to trust and respond. Oftentimes, we lay around waiting for the troubling of the waters, sort of halfway between wanting to be made well and not wanting to be made well. Maybe you've got some kind of, some sin. One I think people struggle with a lot is anger. Say, Lord, I'm fighting this the best that I can. You don't really want to be made well. You want to be even. The jealousy, restoring a relationship, whatever it is. God says to you, do you want to? stand, our musicians come forward, we're going to have a hymn of invitation and give you a chance to respond. If you in faith will answer Jesus' call this morning, he will change your heart, make you holy his.